Volume 2, Chapter 1 of Rob Roy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Fletcher. Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott, Volume 2, Chapter 1. And hurry, hurry off they rode, as fast as fast might be. Hurrah, hurrah, the dead can ride. Dost fear to ride with me? Burger. There is one advantage in an accumulation of evils, differing in cause and character, that the distraction which they afford by their contradictory operation prevents the patient from being overwhelmed under either. I was deeply grieved at my separation from Miss Vernon, yet not so much so as I should have been, had not my father's apprehended distresses forced themselves on my attention, and I was distressed by the news of Mr. Tresham, yet less so than if they had fully occupied my mind. I was neither a false lover nor an unfeeling son, but man can give but a certain portion of distressful emotions to the causes which demand them, and if two operate at once, our sympathy, like the funds of a compounding bankrupt, can only be divided between them. Such were my reflections when I gained my apartment, it seems, from the illustration, they already began to have a twang of commerce in them. I set myself seriously to consider your father's letter. It was not very distinct, and referred for several particulars to Owen, whom I was entreated to meet with as soon as possible at a Scotch town called Glasgow. Being informed, moreover, that my old friend was to be heard of at Messrs. McVitie, McFinn, and Company, merchants in the Gallowgate of said town, it likewise alluded to several letters which, as it appeared to me, must have miscarried or have been intercepted, and complained of my obdurate silence in terms which would have been highly unjust, had my letters reached their purposed destination. I was amazed as I read. That the spirit of Rashley walked around me, and conjured up these doubts and difficulties by which I was surrounded, I could not doubt for one instant. Yet it was frightful to conceive the extent of combined villainy and power which he must have employed in the perpetration of his designs. Let me do myself justice in one respect. The evil of parting from Miss Vernon, however distressing it might in other respects and at another time have appeared to me, sunk into a subordinate consideration when I thought of the dangers impending over my father. I did not myself set a high estimation on wealth, and had the affectation of most young men of lively imagination, who suppose that they can better dispense with the possession of money than resign their time and faculties to the labor necessary to acquire it. But in my father's case, I knew that bankruptcy would be considered as an utter and irretrievable disgrace, to which life would afford no comfort, and death the speediest and sole relief. My mind, therefore, was bent on averting this catastrophe, with an intensity which the interest could not have produced had it referred to my own fortunes, and the result of my deliberation was a firm resolution to depart from Osbaldistone Hall the next day and wend my way without loss of time to meet Owen at Glasgow. I did not hold it expedient to intimate my departure to my uncle, otherwise than by leaving a letter of thanks for his hospitality, assuring him that sudden and important business prevented my offering them in person. I knew the blunt old knight would readily excuse ceremony, and I had such a belief 
in the extent and decided character of Rashley's machinations, that I had some apprehension of his having provided means to intercept a journey which was undertaken with a view to disconcert them, if my departure were publicly announced at Osbaldistone Hall. I therefore determined to set off on my journey with daylight on the ensuing morning, and to gain the neighboring kingdom of Scotland before any idea of my departure was entertained at the hall. But one impediment of consequence was likely to prevent that speed which was the soul of my expedition. I did not know the shortest, nor indeed any road to Glasgow, and as in the circumstances in which I stood, dispatch was of the greatest consequence, I determined to consult Andrew Fairservice on the subject as the nearest and most authentic authority within my reach. Late as it was, I set off with the intention of ascertaining this important point, and after a few minutes' walk reached the dwelling of the gardener. Andrew's dwelling was situated at no great distance from the exterior wall of the garden, a snug, comfortable Northumbrian cottage, built of stones roughly dressed with the hammer, and having the windows and doors decorated with huge, heavy architraves, or lintels as they are called, of hewn stone, and its roof covered with broad grey flags instead of slates, thatch, or tiles. A jargonelle pear tree at one end of the cottage, a rivulet and flower plot of a rood in extent in front, and a kitchen garden behind, a paddock for a cow and a small field, cultivated with several crops of grain, rather for the benefit of the cottager than for sale, announced the warm and cordial comforts which old England, even at her most northern extremity, extends to her meanest inhabitants. As I approached the mansion of the sapient Andrew, I heard a noise, which, being of a nature peculiarly solemn, nasal, and prolonged, led me to think that Andrew, according to the decent and meritorious custom of his countrymen, had assembled some of his neighbors to join in family exercise, as he called evening devotion. Andrew had indeed neither wife, child, nor female inmate in his family. The first of his trade, he said, had had enough of the cattle. But notwithstanding, he sometimes contrived to form an audience for himself out of the neighboring Papists and Church of Englandmen brands, as he expressed it, snatched out of the burning, on whom he used to exercise his spiritual gifts, in defiance alike of Father Vaughan, Father Ducarty, Rashley, and all the world of Catholics around him who deemed his interference on such occasions an act of heretical interloping. I conceived it likely, therefore, that the well-disposed neighbors might have assembled to hold some chapel of ease of this nature. The noise, however, when I listened to it more accurately, seemed to proceed entirely from the lungs of the said Andrew, and when I interrupted it by entering the house, I found fair service alone, combating as best he could, with long words and hard names, and reading aloud, for the purpose of his own edification, a volume of controversial divinity. "'I was just taking a spell,' said he, laying aside the huge folio volume as I entered, "'of the worthy Dr. Lightfoot.' "'Lightfoot?' I replied, looking at the ponderous volume with some surprise. "'Surely your author was unhappily named.' "'Lightfoot was his name, sir. A divine he was, and another kind of a divine than they are nowadays. Always I crave your pardon for keeping you standing at the door.' But having been mistrusted, God preserve us, with I boggled the night already, I was dubious of opening the yet that I had gone gone to the evening worship. And I just finished the fifth chapter of Nehemiah. If that winna gar keep them their distance, I wouldn't have that will. Trusted with a boggle, said I. What do you mean by that, Andrew? I said mistrusted, replied Andrew. 
It is as muckle as to say, flayed they with the geist, God preserve us, I say again. Flayed by a ghost, Andrew? How am I to understand that? I did not say flayed, replied Andrew, but flayed. That is, I got a flag and was ready to jump out of my skin, though nobody offered to whirl it off my body as a man would bark a tree. I beg a truce to your terrors in the present case, Andrew, and I wish to know whether you can direct me the nearest way to a town in your country of Scotland called Glasgow. A town called Glasgow? echoed Andrew Fairservice. Glasgow's a city, man, and is it the way to Glasgow you were spearing if I can't? What soul they'll meet to ken it? It's no that dooms far frae mine perish of daily. It lies a bit farther to the west. But what may your honour be gone to Glasgow for? Particular business, replied I. That's as muckle as to say, spear the questions and I'll tell you the less. The Glasgow. He made a short pause. I am thinking you would be the better or some of the way to show you the road. Certainly if I could meet with any person going that way. And your honour, doubtless, would consider the time and trouble. Unquestionably, my business is pressing, and if you can find any guide to accompany me, I'll pay him handsomely. This is no a day to speak of cardinal matters, said Andrew, casting his eyes upwards. But if it weren't a Sabbath at end, I would spare what you had to be content to guy to ain that would bear you pleasant company on the road and tell you the names of the gentlemen's and noblemen's seats and castles that kept their kin to you. I tell you, all I want to know is the road I must travel. I will pay the fellow to his satisfaction. I will give him anything in reason. Anything, replied Andrew. It's nothing. And this lie I'm speaking of cans are the shortcuts and queer bypass through the hills, and I have no time to talk about it, Andrew. Do you make the bargain for me your own way? Aha, that's speaking to the purpose, answered Andrew. I am thinking, say be the say, it is I'll be the lad that will guide you myself. You, Andrew, how will you get away from your employment? I told your honour a while, saying, it was a lane that I had been thinking of flitting, maybe as long as Frey the first year I came to Osbaldistone all. And now I'm the mind to gang in good earnest, better soon as sign, better a finger off as ye eye wagging. You leave your service, then. But will you not lose your wages? No doubt there will be a certain loss, but then I a siller o' the lords in my hands that I took for the apples in the old orchard, and Sir Bargain the folk had that bought them a wheen green trash, and yet Sir Ildebrand's as keen to the siller, that is, the steward is as pressing about it, as if they had seen the golden pippins. And then there's the siller for the seeds. I'm thinking the wage will be in a manner decently made up, but doubtless your honour will consider my risk of loss when we went to Glasgow, and you'll be for setting out forthwith. By daybreak in the morning, I answered. Ah, something of the suddenest. Where am I to find an egg? Stay, I can just the beast that will answer me. At five in the morning, then, Andrew, you will meet me at the head of the avenue. Deal a fear of me, that I shall say say, missing my trace, replied Andrew very briskly, and if I might advise... We would be off two hours earlier. I can that way dark a light, as will blind Ralph Ronaldson, that's travelled o'er every moor in the countryside, and disna kin the colour of heather a cow when it's a done. I highly approved of Andrew's amendment on my original proposal, and we agreed to meet at the place appointed at three in the morning. At once, however, a reflection came across the mind of my intended travelling companion. 
the bogle, the bogle, what if it should come down upon us? I down the forgather wit the, the things twice in the four and twenty hours. Pooh pooh, I exclaimed, breaking away from him. Fear nothing from the next world. The earth contains living friends who can act for themselves without assistance, where the whole host fell with Lucifer to return, to aid, and abet them. With these words, the import of which was suggested by my own situation, I left Andrew's habitation and returned to the hall. I made the few preparations which were necessary for my proposed journey, examined and loaded my pistols, and then threw myself on my bed to obtain, if possible, a brief sleep before the fatigue of a long and anxious journey. Nature, exhausted by the tumultuous agitations of the day, was kinder to me than I expected, and I sink into a deep and profound slumber, from which, however, I started as the old clock struck two from a turret adjoining to my bedchamber. I instantly arose, struck a light, wrote the letter I proposed to leave for my uncle, and leaving behind me such articles of dress as were cumbrous in carriage, I deposited the rest of my wardrobe in my valise, glided downstairs, and gained the stable without impediment. Without being quite such a groom as any of my cousins, I had learned at Osbaldistone Hall to dress and saddle my own horse, and in a few minutes I was mounted and ready for my sally. As I paced up the old avenue, on which the waning moon threw its light with a pale and whitish tinge, I looked back with a deep and boding sigh towards the walls which contained Diana Vernon, under the despondent impression that we had probably parted to meet no more. It was impossible, among the long and irregular lines of Gothic casements, which now looked ghastly white in the moonlight, to distinguish that of the apartment which she inhabited. She is lost to me already, thought I, as my eye wandered over the dim and indistinguishable intricacies of architecture offered by the moonlight view of Osbaldistone Hall. She is lost to me already ere I have left the place which she inhabits. What hope is there of my maintaining any correspondence with her when leagues shall lie between? While I paused in a reverie of no very pleasing nature, the iron tongue of time told three upon the drowsy ear of night, and reminded me of the necessity of keeping my appointment with a person of a less interesting description and appearance, Andrew Fairservice. At the gate of the avenue I found a horseman stationed in the shadow of the wall, but it was not until I had coughed twice, and then called, Andrew, that the horticulturist replied, I warrant it's Andrew. Lead the way, then, said I, and be silent if you can, till we are past the hamlet in the valley. Andrew led the way accordingly, and at a much brisker pace than I would have recommended, and so well did he obey my injunctions of keeping silence, that he would return no answer to my repeated inquiries into the case of such unnecessary haste, extricating ourselves by shortcuts known to Andrew from the numerous stony lanes and by-paths which intersected each other in the vicinity of the hall, we reached the open heath and riding swiftly across it, took our course among the barren hills which divide England from Scotland on what are called the Middle Marches. The way, or rather the broken track which we occupied, was a happy interchange of bog and shingles. Nevertheless, Andrew relented nothing of his speed, but trotted manfully forward at the rate of eight or ten miles an hour. I was both surprised and provoked at the fellow's obstinate persistence, for we made abrupt ascents and descents over ground of a very breakneck character, and traversed the edge of precipices where a slip of the horse's feet would have consigned the rider to certain death. The moon, at best, afforded a dubious and imperfect light, 
but in some places we were so much under the shade of the mountain as to be in total darkness, and then I could only trace Andrew by the clatter of his horse's feet, and the fire which they struck from the flints. At first this rapid motion, and the attention which, for the sake of personal safety, I was compelled to give to the conduct of my horse was of service, by forcibly diverting my thoughts from the various painful reflections which must otherwise have pressed on my mind. But at length, after hallooing repeatedly to Andrew to ride slower, I became seriously incensed at his impudent perseverance in refusing either to obey or to reply to me. My anger was, however, quite impotent. I attempted once or twice to get up alongside of my self-willed guide, with the purpose of knocking him off his horse with the butt-end of my whip, but Andrew was better mounted than I, and either the spirit of the animal which he bestowed, or more probably some presentiment of my kind intentions toward him, induced him to quicken his pace whenever I attempted to make up to him. On the other hand, I was compelled to exert my spurs to keep him in sight, for without his guidance I was too well aware that I should never find my way through the howling wilderness which we now traverse at such an unwanted pace. I was so angry at length that I threatened to have recourse with my pistols, and send a bullet after the hotspur Andrew, which should stop his fiery-footed career if he did not abate it of his own accord. Apparently, this threat made some impression on the tympanum of his ear, however deaf to all my milder entreaties, for he relaxed his pace upon hearing it, and, suffering me to close up to him, observed, "'There was no muckle sense in riding a sick daft like gate.' "'And what did you mean by doing so at all, you self-willed scoundrel?' replied I, for I was in a towering passion, to which, by the way, nothing contributes more than the having recently undergone a spice of personal fear, which, like a few drops of water flung on a glowing fire, is sure to inflame the ardour which it is insufficient to quench. "'What's your honour's will?' replied Andrew, with impenetrable gravity. "'My will, you rascal! I have been roaring to you this hour to ride slower, and you have never so much as answered me. Are you drunk or mad to behave so?' "'And it like your honour, I am something dull a hearing, and I'll no deny, but I might have maybe taken a stirrup cup at parting fray the old bigging where I had dwell say long. And having nigh by the pledge, nay doubt I was obliged to do my reason, or else leave the end of the brandy stop to the papists, and that would be a waste as your honour kens. This might all be very true, and my circumstances required that I should be on good terms with my guide. I therefore satisfied myself with requiring of him to take his directions from me in future concerning the rate of travelling. Andrew, emboldened by the mildness of my tone, elevated his own into the pedantic, conceited octave, which was familiar to him on most occasions. "'Your honour winna persuade me, and naebody shall persuade me, that it's either hailsome or prudent to take the night air on the moors without a cordial a clough gilliflower water, or a tasse of brandy, or aquavite, or sick-like creature comfort. I had taken the bent or the great rig a hundred times, day and night, I never could find the way unless I had taken my morning. Mere by token, I had whilst to a bit anchors or brandy on the ilk aside of me. In other words, Andrew, said I, you were a smuggler. How does a man of your strict principles reconcile yourselves to cheat the revenue? It's a mere spoiling of the Egyptians, replied Andrew. Poor old Scotland suffers enough by the black garloons at excisemen and gougers that had come down on her like locusts since the sad and sorrowful union, 
It's the part of a kind son to bring her a soup as something that will keep her old heart, and that will they nil thee, the ill-fared thieves. Upon more particular inquiry, I found Andrew had frequently travelled these mountain paths as a smuggler, both before and after his establishment at Osbaldistone Hall, a circumstance which was so far of importance to me as it proved his capacity as a guide, notwithstanding the escapade of which he had been guilty at his outset. Even now, though travelling at a more moderate pace, the stirrup-cup or whatever else had such an effect in stimulating Andrew's motions seemed not totally to have lost its influence. He often cast a nervous and startled look behind him, and whenever the road seemed at all practicable, showed symptoms of a desire to accelerate his pace, as if he feared some pursuit from the rear. These appearances of alarm gradually diminished as we reached the top of a high bleak ridge, which ran nearly east and west for a mile, with a very steep descent on either side. The pale beams of the morning were now enlightening the horizon, and when Andrew cast a look behind him, and not seeing the appearance of a living being on the moors which he had travelled, his hard features gradually unbent, as he first whistled, then sung, with much glee and little melody, the end of one of his native songs. Jenny Lass, I think I ate her, o'er the weir, among the heather, oh, their clan shall never get her. He patted at the same time the neck of the horse which had carried him so gallantly, and my attention being directed by that action to the animal, I instantly recognized a favorite mare of Thorncliff Osbaldistone. "'How is this, sir?' said I sternly. "'That is Mr. Thorncliff's mare!' "'I'll no say, but she may Ireland's a this honor Squire Thorncliff's in her day. "'But she's mine now.' "'You have stolen her, you rascal!' "'No, no, sir. Nay man can wait me with theft.' The thing stands this gate, ye see. Squire Thorncliff borrowed tin puns o' me to gang to your graces. Dale a bottle wad he pay me back again, and spake a rattling bangs as he kied it when I asked him but for my ain back again. Now I think it will rule him, or he gets back his horse, or the border again, unless he pays me pluck and bowby, he shall never see a hair or tail. I can canny chield at Lachmabin. A bit writer lad that will put me in the way to sort him. Steal the mare. Nana, far be the sin o' theft frae Andrew Fair service. I had just accepted her jurisdictionis fandasicosi. Their bonny writer words are maist the language o' his gardeners and other learned men. It's a pity there, say dear. Their three words were that Andrew got for a long law plea and four anchors o' his good brandy as or copit or Craig ish sirs. Claw's a dear thing. You are likely to find it much dearer than you suppose, Andrew, if you proceed in this mode of paying yourself without legal authority. Hout out. We're in Scotland now, be praised for it, and I can find both friends and lawyers, and judges too, as will on any as Baldestones of them, eh? My mither's, mither's third cousin was cousin to the provost of Dumfries, and he wouldn't see a drap or her blood ringed. Out awa, the laws are indifferently administered here to a men and men alike. It's no like on the inside, when a child me whooped awa we an no clerk Jobson's warrants, before he kens where he is. But a will a little enough law among them by and by, and that is as grand a reason as I given them good day. 
I was highly provoked at the achievement of Andrew, and considered it as a hard fate, which a second time threw me into collision with a person of such irregular practices. I determined, however, to buy the mare of him, when should reach the end of our journey, and send her back to my cousin at Esbaldistone Hall, and with this purpose of reparation I resolved to make my uncle acquainted from the next post-town. It was needless, I thought, to quarrel with Andrew in the meantime, who had, after all, acted not very unnaturally for a person in his circumstances. I therefore smothered my resentment, and asked him what he meant by his last expressions, that there would be little law in Northumberland by and by. "'Law?' said Andrew. "'Hout aye there will be club law enough. The priests and the Irish officers, and the papist cattle have been soldiering abroad because they durstna by the aim, are a fleeing thick in Northumberland day now. And the carbines dinna gather without the smell of carrion. As sure as you live, his honour Sir Hildebrand is gone to stick his horn in the book. There's nothing but gun and pistol, sword and dagger among them, and they'll be laying on. I swore for their fearless fools, the youngest Baldestone squires, I craving your honour's pardon. This speech recalled to my memory some suspicions that I myself had entertained, that the Jacobites were on the eve of some desperate enterprise, but conscious it did not become me to be a spy on my uncle's words and actions, I had rather avoided than availed myself of any opportunity which occurred of remarking upon the signs of the times. Andrew Fairservice felt no such restraint, and doubtless spoke very truly in stating his conviction that some desperate plots were in agitation, as a reason which determined his resolution to leave the hall. The servants, he stated, with the tenantry and others, had all been regularly enrolled in mustard, and they wanted me to take arms also, but I'll ride in a second troop, they little kenned Andrew that asked him. I'll fight when I like myself, but it shall neither be for the Hure of Babylon, nor any Hure in England. End of Volume 2 Chapter 1